and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about living. Join me today. I think he could pull off a bowler hat. It's Daniel Lima. Daniel, what's going on? Oh, thank you. I mean, history has shown that I cannot. I've tried it. It didn't work out, but, you know, glad to be here. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I, I feel like at some point you just got to, as much of an affection as you have for these old white men, you got to try and see if you can pull off the wardrobe at some point. You just owe it to yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> um, uh, Living is the new movie from director Oliver Hermanis, written by Kazo Ishiguro. It is adapted from the, the 1952 movie by Akira Kurosawa, Akiru. That movie is set in post-World War II Japan. This version of it is transplanted to post-World War II London in 1953. Uh, follows uh, Rodney Williams, who is played by Bill Nye, who is a bureaucrat in the kind of the London City Council office and within their um, civil civic projects department. I don't know if that's the right name for it, Daniel. I'm, there's, we see we weren't we see so many different offices of this in this building that it's hard to keep them straight. I know they're not in the parks one because they like to shit on the parks people, but that is his job. It seems like he spends most of his day being a very disruptive bureaucrat, showing very little emotion, not really engaging at all that much with the staff of people that work for him. But he ha- has this staff that like, you know, just sits at a desk with him. He doesn't do much, doesn't say much and just lives his life. Very routine, takes a train to work, takes it back, doesn't really even talk to his, his son and his daughter and all that much. Just living a very, very uh, solitary, uh, not th- not all that engaging life. He gets a cancer diagnosis, uh, is given only six months to live, and all of a sudden starts to rethink his life. Uh, Daniel, I it's, it's something we referenced a little bit. We just, uh, within the last couple of weeks of when people are listening to this, they would have had the opportunity to listen to us talk about A Man Called Otto. I think maybe we've touched on this genre prior to that, but never quite as directly as we have on these last two episodes, where you like to say, you know, in addition to all the other, all the other things, whether it be action movies, animal movies, another favorite genre of yours is old men reckoning with the life they've lived. And I'm curious, though, you are not an old man. You are uh, well within the first half of your life. So I'm wondering, have you given much thought now that we've had a few of these movies recently as to like why this genre resonates with you as much as it does? You know, it's something that I actually have been thinking about, especially in relation to the coming of age movie. I feel like you're not as big on coming of age as you are. The exactly. I am not. I, I do not like coming of age movies, which, which is one that I really like. And whereas I went into living feel, thinking it would be homework. Spoiler alert, I did not I did not end up feeling that way, but like I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum for you in that. And then my favorite movies of any given year tend to include a couple of the coming of age. Well, I feel like I've been thinking about it, and especially in relation to the coming of age movie, especially the directors kind of recollecting their reminiscing about their youth movies of the last year. And I think honestly that a lot of coming of age movies, they kind of they kind of do, regardless of whether they are like, you know, sappy or whether they're a little more introspective, they tend to kind of have a sort of wistful air about them. I think it goes comes down to like, you know, if you're at the point in your life where you're able to make a movie diving into your childhood and all that sort of stuff, you've kind of made it. So regardless of how, you know, your upbringing was, there is a sort of appreciation for the fact that these are the experiences that got you to where you are. Um, Mm. Do you find that that's true of you? Is that what makes coming of age stuff relate to you in some way? Out of the, I guess I have liked some of those director ones, but I don't know if any of them have been like, I'm not sure if any of them have cracked my top five, at least the ones most people would think about from the last few years. I think I've liked them more than you on the whole though. You know, one that I think like people haven't really necessarily talked about as much like in relation to some of the ones you've seen more in the last two to three years 
uh, is Lady Bird, which was my favorite movie of 2017, but very much is that as well. And it's Greta Gerwig like revisiting that time in her life. And I'm not sure why that one feels different to me. Uh, but like, I definitely would place it like kind of a cut above some of the other filmmakers one ones we've seen the last few years. Maybe in a way, it's like even though that one is very much focused on that character, like wanting to get out and do something creative with her life, uh, it maybe just doesn't feel as navel gazy in some kind of way. I don't know why that is. Well, to be fair, it's not it's not even just the filmmaker ones I'm talking about. I'm also talking well, you know, granted, like something like Boyhood. I don't know how autobiographical it is, you know, but I think generally speaking, this is a like when. When these are the sorts of narratives that are being told by people who have kind of achieved something or made peace with their, you know, past or something like that. And like there, there inherently is a sort of a fondness, even if it's, you know, not exactly a, you know, rose tinted glasses or a portrayal of the past. But with the old man movie, ultimately, there is a sadness and loneliness to these sorts of narratives of old people who are kind of at the end of their life and have to kind of grapple with the the mistakes they've made you know maybe i'm just a really pessimistic guy but that's the kind of emotion that i really do resonate with well let me ask you about then more on that point let me ask you a little more specifically about living because i think part of what is uh very impressive about living is that sure it's sad in parts but like i feel like in some ways i you know you you could probably describe it as wistful in some ways, but in like a lot of ways, I actually think it's kind of it felt hopeful to me at times, in spite of the the prognosis that its protagonist had. And I'm wondering if that was something that you kind of felt as well, because that's what kind of really kind of most caught me off guard and really struck me about the movie was that like, yeah, this guy is having a reckoning because of this death sentence. But at the same time, like you can't help but like just be have your heart warmed in some ways watching this. You know, and what in what the ways he decides to take control of his life. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that with now, I should ask actually before I answer. Have you watched Ikaru? No, I have not. So I, I wanted to kind of point that out because maybe that's part of why I, I was so caught off guard by this. I did not know what to expect going in, really, other than you, you, you saying it was broadly a part of this genre that we've just talked about for a few minutes. I knew nothing about it. Yeah. So I saw Ikaru, but I saw it in 2016. So like that has been it's been years since I've seen it. The only thing I really clearly remember is like the image of the of the main actor, Takashi Shimura, um, on the swing set. I remember like the some of the kind of tearful uh, per- performance that he gives like it's very powerful it's honestly probably like in my top five performances ever you know mm-hmm. uh, maybe number one but i you know it's not a movie that i really have gone back to since um in my memory though it is a far more somber movie like there's still the poeticism because i mean it's kurosawa but um it's a far more somber dramatic sort of movie with living though i think there is a sense of refined elegance i don't know how else to describe it and i think that goes to just um the craft of the movie the feel of the movie it's you know lovingly uh, shot like i i don't know if it's digital or film but it has a sort of filmic quality uh the color grade i think mm-hmm. br- is reminiscent of like the kind the of yeah it's the kind of like the sort of faded technicolor look of like films from the 1950s um me and uh other frequent guests of the pod uh josh brown we recently saw pandora and the flying dutchman uh which was a uh i believe a british production from the 50s and it has the same sort of color gray to it and like it just i I think it's just gorgeous to look at the music has this it's this like string score that is you know like just beautiful to listen to. And I think it sort of cultivates a sort of more cultured 
air. I mean, not to say that Kikuru is uncultured, but I think it's uh, cultured in a very distinctly British sort of sense. But that was another question I was going to get at with you is like what made this stand on its own in a way from that from Ikiru, assuming you'd watched it. And that I, I, it does sound like from what I've seen, a lot of people do think it kind of, you know, really served it served the story well and made it, you know, give it its own feel. So it didn't just feel like they were totally aping their original. Right. I think a large part of that goes into uh, is because Ikiru is a product of, you know, post-war Japan and like, you know, uh, Kurosawa and other you know, Japanese people grappling with the, you know, fallout of that war. You know, it was produced like very shortly after 1952. Um, Living, though, is set in post-war Britain, which I'm not entirely familiar with, like, the conditions of post-war Britain. Uh, I know that they had received a lot of damage during the, you know, during the Blitz during the war, but they bounced back, I think, relatively quickly. And I think it kind of the, the film's uh, craft keys into that sort of stiff upper lip British sensibility of like, you know, pressing on, doing your due duty and not expecting anything more out of life. I think Bill Nye is a very good vehicle for that. And because I think it just gets a, a ton of mileage out of that stoicism and that British repression that he so greatly delivers in that, I mean, Every time there is like the slightest reaction of him to anything or a non-reaction to something that like should elicit a bigger reaction, just like an easy like way to generate laughs. His literally his doctor gives him this like long diatribe about how he's so sorry and how he has six months to live. And he literally just says, quite. And that's it. <laughs> and it, it, it just I, I, I was just really impressed by how like this kind of movie like generated laughs in the way it did when it had such a getting a very very specific performance that doesn't seem so comedic on the surface it it knew how to service him in that way i should also note that like going along with that too as far as like generating laughs like my audience is like very into this i don't know the conditions i I know you saw it at sundance initially in 2022 right yes and uh or virtually like well everyone saw everything virtually because sundance got canceled in 2022 (laughs) uh but i i did not get to see it till about a week ago and I, I had like a, I haven't posted it yet, but like I actually, I, as I told you offline, I had a fairly similar like personal letterbox review. I had like written up my head about this one and the kind of the story behind that is, and uh, it, it, there's like a, this is going to be like, let me, let me just, let me just tell this quick aside, I guess, on my viewing experience. I think that kind of informed how I felt about the movie a little bit uh, and how it, it felt like such a fulfilling experience. I basically like I I bought a ticket to go to see I was going to go see this at like two ten in Boca at a the FAU Living Room Theater which is like a uh, independent theater that's like in the Florida Atlantic campus where I've seen I mean I don't go there as much as I should but like every year they have two or three things that I can't get anywhere else and it's a great resource I show up there at like two o'clock on it's it's almost never I mean, it's always me and like three octogenarians it's uh, it, from from Boca Raton that's what's what it is every movie I go there I go there and I can't even find a parking spot on Saturday I finally get in there's a long line I see a sign on the door that says uh, our last day of operation is February 9th. Thank you for hanging out with us or something like that. So that's real. I'm sad at first because this place is closing down. Finally, all these old ass people have finally decided to support the place. And they're like clogging <laughs> up the theater because I, I hear from someone else waiting on, oh, living is sold out. And mind you, I've driven a half an hour south to do this. And the next showing is not till 710. So I rearranged my whole day because I'm like, all right, I'm going to go see one last movie here. It's going to be this one, which I kind of think is going to be homework, but I want to see it because I want to see all the Oscar nominated performances. And I know Daniel liked it. And uh, I, I, I think hopefully it'll just be worth it. So, I mean, at that point, it's like, what am I going to do with my day? Okay. It's, it's kind of sad. I'm going to be like watching this movie by myself on a Saturday night. And you like me, go, we, we both go to the movies a lot by ourselves. I don't think there should be any kind of stigma with it, but there's a difference between like going at like one twenty on a Sunday and like seven o'clock on a Saturday night in theory, like, 
I should be out doing stuff with my friends on Saturday night. And I, I, but like my first couple of years living here, like I had a lot more nights, like by myself at night, you know, like I, I, before I made as many friends down here that I could do stuff with. And for a second, I was like, kind of sad. It's like, wow, is this kind of like pathetic? I'm going to be like sitting in like this independent theater with a bunch of old people. I don't know. on a Saturday night. Like, I mean, I found, I found other friends to hang out with in the Southern, in that, that, that part of South Florida that lived there. So it wasn't like by myself all day, but I was like self-conscious about doing this. I'm like, I haven't like just hung out by myself like this on a Saturday night in years. And I was just kind of sad. I was like, look, this is, I've, I've like, you know, like I haven't, I progressed beyond this point in life. I should be like do, doing social, being social, going out doing more things. So I was just kind of like not in the best headspace going in. Cause I, again, I kind of expected this to be a staid British movie and like, I'm spending my Saturday night just like seeing this movie. That's just like, I, I know for some reason you liked it, but that's not always, a, that's not always a given that I'm going to like it just because you liked it. So no, I'm no, still it's, like, a, it's not always uh, a given with anybody, whether right. I like so something. I'm just skeptical about it. And all of a sudden I, I go and it's a basically a sold out theater, uh, which is different for this kind of thing. Kind of special. Cause I know I'm never going to be in this theater again. And I'm like, I was actually really taken about it. Cause also I should say, uh, while in theory, like the, some of these old people might be more loyal moviegoers, they're not old people are really actually just as bad as teens in some ways. I don't know if that's the same in your experience as far as theater etiquette. Yeah, they tend to they, they tend to think that the theater is their living room. And so they talk. I mean, they're 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 not joking at the screen, but they're like talking to each other over the movie as if like they're just on their couch. Yeah. So more than one time I've been in that theater in like I, this old old person's gotten up and been like, yeah, I, I don't know about this. And then just straight up walks out like they, they'll just talk and say stuff to themselves like they don't really care. Anyone else is there. There was nary a peep the entire runtime of living. And everyone laughed at all the right spots. So, I mean, it was just kind of like a, and, and, and also it helped me kind of reflect on my life a little bit as I was like kind of in, in much of the same ways it did for you, as I know from writing your review, it's like, I was kind of thinking about the fact that like, look, I've, I've, you know, I've, I, in a lot of ways, I don't know if my life has really changed all that much in the last six years that I've lived here as it should have. I mean, aside from the fact that like I've done well at my job, it's not a job I'm convinced I want to be at forever. Uh, and good thing my boss is never going to listen to this. Uh, and <laughs> And I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not quite convinced, even though I've done well in it. And then everything else about my life has stayed the same, basically, except for my friends. So it's like, you know, I, I, I live in the same apartment, and I'm, I'm no, really no closer to having a family than I was six years ago. I'm just like thinking about like my life as I'm watching this, and I'm blown away that this movie about this old white British man is like making me think about my life in this way. And I'm just very impressed. I mean, it is a movie that kind of like it's easy to put the audience in that headspace when you're. This is a movie about what this is about. But at the same time, I was just incredibly impressed that this movie like made me look inward in that way, given everything that was going on in my life and how I was thinking about the fact that I was about to spend a Saturday night alone. And then I very much didn't feel alone because it was a, it was just a, a much more communal space than I'd had in a movie theater in quite some time. And, but I was like more comfortable for some reason. Like I, I was excited to be in that room because I knew I'd never be there again. Everyone was like in the right headspace for the movie. And I just hadn't, the only other times I really had that crowded of a theater in the last couple of years were basically like only Marvel movies, avatar and like oddly enough like the green knight because like that was in a smaller theater at my amc and then like like i, I can count on one hand basically how many times in the last few years i've had a, a in theater experience where i didn't know where i had people sitting on either side of me and i didn't know them you know so like it, it kind of sticks out when i have that experience and it was just like a really good experience that i was so unsure about going in but was so fulfilled by the movie and like actually like quite taken with the setting and it just all really came together. And I, and I, that's my long winded way of saying like, I'm just damn impressed this movie, like moved me that much when it's about this subject matter and about like an old British man in the fifties. And you knew that you were more apt to be connected to subject matter like this than I was. So it just really, really blew me away that like 
I like, I wasn't necessarily planning on doing a podcast about it either. Even if I came out of it, giving it a thumbs up, but I was like moved enough about it that I like told you about it and it worked out well that you would happen to go see it yourself anyway. I wouldn't have like asked you to do that if I knew you hadn't. That, that's just all to say that like, I, I just think the movie really does like kind of contain multitudes that it can kind of force a movie, um, uh, an audience to laugh, but also like stay dead quiet and focus when it's literally just about this like old guy thinking about what he should, how he should act now that he has so long to live and everyone to be totally engaged. And I just think that it could, that, that it accomplishes both of those things just speaks to the overall quality of the film. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful experience, by the way. It's mm-hmm. great to have mm-hmm. that sort of crowd reaction to a movie like this. It's great to also like, you know, that, that added resonance of it being the last time in this theater. It's like kind of a marking of a chapter, you mm-hmm. know, and that's very much what Igru was concerned about. It's the closing of a chapter and reflecting on everything that's come before it. I did not have that experience just because I saw it on my laptop first. And then when I went to rewatch it in theaters, I was the only person in the theater. Oh, interesting. All alone. Did your Regal have it or did you have to go somewhere else? My Regal did have it, although I had to go to a different Regal to go see it because I had to go get my security license. Again, my security license, which goes into part of why this movie and these sorts of narratives do resonate so much with me. You had to deal with bureaucracy right before you did it? Exactly. I had to deal with bureaucracy, but beyond that, I had to deal with it in order to retain my security license so that I could retain the job that I have right now, which is a security job that I've been at for years, that I sit down and I do nothing. I sit down, I watch movies, I you know play video games, I read, you know whatever. I kill time for eight hours and then I go home and I sleep and then I wake up in the morning and then or the afternoon. And, and oddly enough, that's kind of what that's kind of what that's kind of what Williams is doing for the first like 20 minutes of this movie in his job. <laughs> exactly. You're seeing that, you know, he could not care less about the things that he's doing. You could see that the things that he's doing don't really ultimately matter to anybody. Um, you know, he's just shuffling paper around the, you know, off city, like government office. When he finally gets this diagnosis, you know, he takes stock of everything that he's experienced and how little he truthfully has. Uh, the same experience that when you say that, you know, you were reflecting on how it was a Saturday night and you were sitting alone in a movie theater or planning on sitting alone in a movie theater. Um, That's a thought that I've had so often. I work overnight. I have worked overnight for like the past 10 years. I see nobody pretty much during the day because everybody's, all my friends are at work. I work weekends. You know, it can get very trying. It can get very lonely. And when you see something that like forces you to take stock of that, it's very isolating. It's very you start lamenting all the choices that you could have made that could have put you somewhere else. You know, for me personally, I'm like, what if I had stayed in the Navy? What if I had tried to make it in Chicago? What if I, uh, you know, did this, did that. And like you said, Bill Nye, like really does let all these sorts of emotions play across his face you know, the fact that he can't really talk about this to his son because he looks at his son and sees a life yet to live. And he just doesn't want to saddle this sort of stuff on him. So instead, what does he do? He goes out, you know, he runs into this this artist guy and he becomes this stranger, becomes the Wait, first. By Tom Burke that some people might know from The Souvenir or playing Orson Welles in Mink. Oh, that's Orson. Okay. Yeah. I genuinely have no idea who that man is, but- Um, you know, he runs into this artist guy, you know, he plays hooky from work for the first time in probably his entire life. 
and ends up buddying with him to help experience life because he genuinely has no idea how to, um, which is definitely a feeling that I, I feel. I look to, you know, my friends who are, you know, out there living their life, you know, they go on trips, they, you know, do this, do that. And I just, I don't have that inclination. It, I don't, it's not even that like, it's tough to like make it work hey, out. It's you, just, pr- you, you, pr- you promised a trip to West Palm soon. So you <laughs> at least that, that, yeah, of course. <laughs> but um, like, it's one of those things where like, you know, you just don't know how to even make that sort of thing happen. It's not in your inclination. You're so used to the drudgery, the routine that you've fallen into that deviating from it just seems like an impossibility. And, you know, when, when Bill like, you know, starts saying these words, I see in his performance, like it just, pitch perfect the kind of the person who has never uttered these sorts of words never opened up at all about these it hasn't me perhaps even considered these sorts of feelings within him and they're kind of spilling out but in this sort of measured way because he's processing it as he says it like i think that it's a it, it is genuinely like a brilliant performance the entire way through especially in these opening scenes in these first scenes of him kind of opening up and also there's like a lot of regret with him because he's like wondering, is this something I, wh- why did I need the death sentence to do this? He, he's looking back on a life lost and how many missed opportunities he had and what else he could have done. Sure. At some point when he, he eventually, you know, feels this motivation to help uh, actually get a playground built that, that in a funny sequence earlier in the movie, uh, three women from the community, like showed up to their office to try and do. And basically it's a project that had gotten passed around the city council um, departments, like for, for the better part of however years, apparently. And yeah, bureaucratic hot potato. Right. All these people get passing the book and he realizes, okay, maybe that's some good I can do there. And I think he's kind of realizing like, what could I have done in that regard? If my life had been different, what could I have done socially? If I, if, if I had taken a different approach and all that. So it really makes you as the audience member, like wonder like, man, what does it take to like, just do I have the capacity in me to change the way I am without <laughs> like, without being faced with the death sentence? And it's like, it's like, it's like a really powerful thing to think about. Cause it's, it's powerful watching this guy process it through the lens of a death sentence, but clearly wondering like, why, why did it take this for me to do this? And you wonder like, well, in what ways can you really take control of your life? Cause you, you, you obviously, it's, it's obviously a nice sentiment at the same time. You don't want to like, you know, think about it in terms of like, you know, um, you don't you want to think in terms about it like 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 an economic thing I, in, in some ways this movie is like probably very very much like I, i've seen some people trying to quantify just how anti-capitalist this movie is in, in some ways and you know how you probably should embrace other things in life other than but it's but it's like it's not even like money was like it's it's, it's not it's not seen that like money was a certain no, goal yeah. for this guy money, money yeah money was not the animating force what was no. the, it was just that there was there was no animating force that he just fell into this sort of routine. routine. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, you could argue that that is the kind of thinking, the mode of thinking that capitalism drills into you, I suppose. Right. And, and, yeah. And I, and I don't want to say like, but I'm trying not to like be like, yeah, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you'll be good. It's, I'm not, not even, not even. <laughs> no, no, no. What I think, what I do think is that um, like the end of this movie, as much as like I resonate with the sort of melancholy um, in here, I will admit that like the, the 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 finale, which is kind of the same, it works the same as in the original film. Um, you know, he gets animated and he decides to take on this project and leave this sort of monument. But I think what is I think the the beauty of this film is that you know the monument that he makes in a letter that a posthumous letter that he leaves, um, you know, to one of his coworkers. Uh, he's he you know acknowledges that this is not permanent like this was a minor small little thing that he managed to do get this little playground built in a small neighborhood in london a small city well a relatively small city in a very very big world um and it won't last 
And he knows that, but he takes solace. He takes some sort of a sense of pride and, and meaning in the fact that he actually got himself to do this. And I think it's important th- to the film that like what he did was not just uh, like create a great work of art or something like that. No, what he did was created something that could be enjoyed by other people. Uh, he takes joy in this monument, not because it's a great tangible thing necessarily, but because it's a thing that will improve the lives of others. I think that when he makes the realization that he had only been kind of not experiencing life, I think what he makes the, I think he makes the connection that to really live is to live amongst others, to connect with other people. I think that that is, you know, ultimately the heart of the film. And I think it's a beautiful little message. I don't know what to tell you. Well, so you, so you mentioned um, uh, connecting with other people. Uh, what did you think uh, in this movie specifically of uh, Amy Lou Wood, who plays uh, Miss Margaret Harris, a uh, the one woman that was at his office. She takes a job at a restaurant while he goes on his little hiatus after he gets his cancer diagnosis. They reconnect when they happen to meet each other out. And then he starts spending a lot of time with her to a point that like she almost becomes uncomfortable with it till she like figures out what's going on with him. And it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting connection they have. And she's a really interesting performer because she playing a different kind of character on, um, on sex education, but uh, at the same, but she's not really doing much to change her affect. It's just, I, so I, that's why, that's what impressed me so much about this performance. What did you think about its depiction of showing him connecting with such a younger person? Well, that was actually a very interesting part of the film for me, um, especially in relation to the original film, Ikaru. Now, granted, I might be talking out my ass here. It's been a minute since I've seen Ikaru, but I remember that scene where, you know, he does the same thing. He starts bonding with this young woman who he works with and eventually like she becomes very uncomfortable. But I remember that scene being played far more pitifully when Bill Nye uh, is sitting with, um, what was it, Amy Lou? Yeah, Amy Lou Wood. When he's, sitting, Margaret Harris. when he's sitting with Amy Lou and he reveals his prognosis, you know, he does it with the same sort of quiet reserve. He approaches all of life. Um, they're not a nary a tear gets dropped by him, at least. And she is overcome with compassion and, yeah, pity. But, you know, she, she clearly feels for him. And I remember this scene and I might be wrong, but I remember this scene being played in the first film as far more pathetic. Like he is seen as like in kind of old man, just grasping desperately at any sign of vitality in life that he can. And she is far less overtly sympathetic to, you know, his trauma, his struggle, you know. And here she finds it kind of admirable when she realizes what's going on, I think. I suppose so. I, I, I do think that it makes a certain sense. I mean, it, it's good to elucidate like kind of, uh, for for a character so reserved, what exactly he's trying to figure out and piece together in the twilight of his life. It also ties into what I said. The ultimately, the, the movie is about connecting with other people and like a sort of kind of collective sort of celebration of life. Because were it not for his attempt to kind of live vicariously through this young woman, I don't think he would have made the connection that like the playground would be like the best possible thing he could do to do something of meaning. It's just really cool to watch this particular performance that, you know, does so much with like actually so little with respect to like uh, his voice aside from when he sings. Oh, how did we skip over that beautiful, beautiful scene? I will say uh, that is there. That is um, a, a scene also taken from Ikaru. 
Um, like he sings a, uh, I think a Japanese folk song in that film. Um, here it is a uh, Scottish folk song and it is, yeah, it is very resonant. It's very beautiful. You see a sort of, you know, longing for the past, longing for a time in his life where there were all these possibilities and you see how it kind of crushes him to think about how all those possibilities uh, were squandered over the course of singing this ballad. So, um, yeah, I really did love that scene. It's one of my favorites of 2022. What do you think of the structure of the film? You know, he has a death sentence. So I was almost taken aback when like that death like happens midway through and then they, and then they work their way backwards. Is that kind of how they uh, structured also in Akiru? And uh, how, how did you think that kind of served the, served the story here where you kind of go back and, I think one of the more touching moments of the movie is, you know, at the end where uh, the young man that's kind of come to work for them at the beginning, apparently uh, Williams noticed him at some point. So he sends him a letter and uh, kind of talks about what his goals are. And you see how things have kind of fallen into disrepair at the office. And they, they also have a talk about like, and, and but they all, but more, more so like when they give a talk about like how he come to kind of realize like, oh, I do think he knew about his diagnosis well beforehand and that that informed his behavior. Uh, so I think th- they do a lot of interesting stuff with that choice to like have this third act of the movie kind of be reflective. And I'm wondering like how, how you think about just how it wasn't completely linear. And I'm guessing it probably is to some extent like that Nikiru, but like, how do you think it kind of worked here from the way they parsed it out? Yeah, no, it is the same structure in Ikaru. I, I, I'll admit here that I uh, don't really remember the movie again, but I do know that that is the same structure where like halfway through he, he's dies and, uh, you know, it's then kind of a reconstruction of the process by which uh, he fought to get this thing made. Ikaru is also like 40 minutes longer, I believe. But I believe that instead of playing over like the the co-worker sort of realizing how instrumental he was in getting because, you know, the idea is that the um, the bureaucracy doesn't want to attribute credit to him. Like the, their boss wants to take the credit for himself and they're like all trying to minimize his contributions. But as his co-workers sit together and talk, they realize how how he grabbed life kind of by the horns at the end and like really pushed in to to get this thing made. And I think the 40 extra 40 minutes comes in like that not playing over montage. It's like separate scenes um, in the original. I can't really say, but um, I do think that it, you know, we were talking about how, whether or not this movie is anti-capitalist. I think if this would probably be the portion where it would be the most overtly, because the idea is that, um, in spite of this beautiful thing that he did, like this kind of structure, this, you know, society, societal like hierarchy wants to make this thing conform to ex- expectations of how life should be arranged. You know, like it wants this playground to be not a monument to a man who sought to leave something that would bring people joy necessarily, but he, they want it to be a part of the plan. And I think that the final third of the film is sort of meant to address that reality, but also to sort of refute it, to say that regardless of how the world attempts to sort of structure our reality uh, or society tries to conform our reality to like an idea of what society should look like, we can ultimately derive a meaning from it a meaning from our experiences and the world around us that uh, they cannot take away from us. Like we said, uh, money wasn't really what personally drove his motivations in life, but also like, I think 
at the same time, the path of least resistance was probably giving into the more, you know, like cost-effective option. It was just easier. It was easier for him to go through his routine if he did that than to break it up. Because I mean, look, I yeah, they apparently they always probably did have the capacity to get that playground done. It just I think we're led to believe based on the tour we get through at the at the beginning with respect to uh, Mr. Wakeling's first day, like we're led to believe like whenever this did get done, it was going to take a lot. And so we're led to believe he like really went through a lot that would have kind of disrupted the pattern he had fallen into, which is probably just being a cog in the machine of capitalism uh, to some extent, even if, again, this is a government, not a private corporation or whatever. Uh, it's, it, it, it's what's easier and probably cheaper and more cost effective for everyone involved. And it just, you know, to, to do what he did, it's it, the movie makes it clear there's a lot of value in that. But like it was clearly something that like, you know, actually like took putting yourself and others in some level of discomfort just to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I think, I, I think it's, I, I think, I think the movie makes it really clear what he did was very satisfying and also like, is not just, you know, uh, just feeding into the same, you know, government complacency that would otherwise be there. And in, 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 in what was like a, a fairly uh, conservative time in Britain, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. I, I wish I was a smarter man here because I know mm -hmm. that there's a philosopher. All, all, I feel. I feel like all of our friends know more foreign policy than us. That well, we, I was about uh, to say philosophy actually because oh, there's yeah. a philosopher. I believe it might be Camus who talks about how, um, like, you know that you're kind of making progress and building yourself as a person uh, when you're at some kind of precipice that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and I think that this is a film that kind of, you know, kind of takes that philosophy and runs with it like you know it, it does like you said like you know he's going out in like the pouring rain walking through sewage water in order to make this thing uh, happen which is where a part of me does kind of wish that the film might have been a little bit longer to allow us to kind of absorb the effort that it took in order to get this thing made like it plays over a montage and it's a nice little montage it's you know like gorgeously constructed and you know the craft is great and you know you can't help but be moved because you've seen how you know not animated this man has been the entirety of his life so you know the montage has a certain meaning but if we were able to just sit with him you know in that room as he just waited on this these bureaucrats to succumb to his wishes if we just stayed in the room as he literally begged his boss to reconsider not building this playground um i think that it would have hit home a little more emotionally i say that as if i wasn't incredibly moved and that this isn't one of my favorite movies of the year but um you know it's i was not I, admittedly for my memory 26 uh 2016 watching it grew i was like absolutely floored and here i was just floored so it, it, it's a fair critique i suppose but yeah i mean on the whole though um still just like incredibly effective for where it gets him to and where it gets the audience to um, is there anything else we haven't touched on yet that you want to uh, discuss about the movie before we wrapped up? Well, I think that we about covered it. I, I think that it is like an absolutely gorgeous uh, movie. I, I do I want to like emphasize really the craft of it. Uh, you know, as much as the emotionality of it is so touching, like, it is also just, man, how did he do this? I don't know much about technical stuff about film, I'm going to admit here. But I mean, the way that it's shot, like it is like evoking, like I, I, thought, I was thinking about like like old Life magazine, like photographs, you know, from like the era, like it, it, it is absolutely stunning uh, to look at. Uh, so clean, so crisp. And yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't remember. I, I genuinely like, agree. I can't remember the last time like a movie like grabbed me visually in that way. I think and it might just... be my pick for cinematography, I think. 
I mean, you know, in my personal ballot. Yeah, no, I, I, I would not, I would not uh, be upset. Uh, well, it didn't get nominated, but like, I mean, it, <laughs> I would, it, it, it would not have been uh, undeserving for sure. Uh, you know, so uh, who did get nominated for cinematography? It was like weird, right? Yeah, it was yeah. A weird because it did uh, not uh, at all it, relate it could, to ASC. Yeah, oh man, it's it's just such a weird uh, group. It's all quiet on the Western Front. Bardo, Elvis, Empire of Light and Tar. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, it's it's so weird. Man, I yeah, gosh, I, I, yeah. So it was it was weird that like you know it was very strange to everyone that like Top Gun didn't get nominated, but like uh, having seen this, it's like I don't understand how you like nominate. Well, actually, I haven't seen Bardo, so I I I, I know Bardo, I know Bardo does are... Bardo does deserve it. Out of those five, it probably does definitely take oh, away. Okay, so and actually, Empire Lights not a good movie, but like Roger Deakins does his thing, so maybe just a good year for yeah, cinematography. Yeah, it's, it's one of his weaker. It's one of his weaker like outings. He shouldn't be on there, but also like okay. it's still it's still decent. I I still like the look of that movie, even though the movie's not great. I mean, you're 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 you're, you're an Elvis defender. I am, like, although not. Do you think for that the, was one it deserved? Not yeah. not one for the cinematography. I don't think that it's bad. I just don't think that it's like impressive enough. Like the editing is where the power of that movie lies. But uh, Daniel, I, I I've done like four podcasts in like the last seven days. I'm pretty sure so I don't have any other recommendations. Anything you want to recommend though that you've been watching? <laughs> well, actually, I have not been watching as many many movies as uh, recently. Um, uh, I, I think honestly, if I have to talk about anything, I will talk about this book because um, there's no place else for me to discuss this. Um, one moment, let me grab it so I remember the title. It truly left an impression on you. Well, the thing is, it's a very nondescript title. Um, mm. Darkness and Day uh, by Ivy Compton Burnett, which is actually a British novel. Uh, she is She was a novelist uh, who wrote from like, I think 1910 to like 1960 or something like that into her old age. Uh, often uh, there was very much like domestic dramas in like kind of upper middle class or upper class households, you know, a lot of upstairs, downstairs, sort of like hijinks and drama and such. The, the book is Darkness and Day. I don't know if I said that. This one, I mean, from my understanding, it follows a similar formula. It is, uh, you know, these two rich families that have always kind of lived next to each other. The upper, I'm not going to lie, man. The story is kind of bad. Like the story is, is the story is genuinely not bad. That is not good. Um, the, the appeal of these novels, as far as I can tell, is just the dialogue. The book is almost entirely composed of long ass conversations taking place in single rooms uh, where people, characters come in, come out, and like they're all kind of sniping at each other. They're all, you know, you know, undermining each other in little ways and insulting each other. And it's kind of meant to be kind of maybe not meant to be an eat the rich sort of narrative, but it is meant to sort of elucidate how petty and how, you know, hierarchical um, this society was um, and how rigid these sort of social structures and social dynamics were. And it's one of those things where like some page, I'll go whole pages kind of reading and going, I don't really know what's going on. I don't know what these people are saying to each other. And then I'll land on a couple of pages where I'm like, this is some of the, the greatest, wittiest dialogue I've ever read. So <laughs> it's very much, it's a niche sort of appeal. I will admit it is kind of hard to get through at some point. It took like a month to read this book. It's only like 200 pages because it, it, it was a little hard to decipher at some points and, actually cracking it open was you know tough but at the same time it's a book that i'm still like you know i i have some sort of affinity for just on the basis of the dialogue it's something that if you like you know i don't know 
upstairs downstairs sort of like downton abbey stuff if you're into like comedies by people like woody allen or uh what's it called um who's the guy who did like uh metropolitan you know with stillman yeah i i feel like this would be kind of your bag or even like um White, hmm. no, who's the white noise guy again? Noah Bombach or Don DeLillo? Or well, or I guess Noah Bombach because I will maybe Dom DeLillo also because I think that the dialogue is similarly impenetrable there. Um, I the reason I picked this book up honestly was that I had heard that this woman's works were like unadaptable, and I was like, well, that's interesting. I want to read something that could only exist in a novel, and uh, you know, I kind of agree, it is kind of unadaptable, but I would a part of me is like, I would love to kind of try to figure out how to make this work in a film. All right. Well, a uh, very interesting recommendation. So uh, that th- th- that wraps it up for living, though. As usual, uh, you can find Daniel on Letterbox at Polonius Funk. You can find me at Josh Renovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast email is RealMoviePod at gmail.com. Podcast Twitter is at RealMoviePod. Coming up next on the podcast might be an episode on our fr- with our friend Josh Brown on uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance and the aforementioned white noise uh haven't really coordinated that yet but i think that's probably next on the docket along with uh ant-man uh quantum mania uh i don't even remember the phone man and the wasp quantum mania okay so they're still keeping the wasp in it good for the wasp okay good for the wasp good for her oh god are you excited for that one i gotta ask i i every marvel movie now i'm just going into with great trepidation because i just don't think the multiverse stuff is really for me uh, you know, it's just not my, it, it, I don't like what it does to the stakes. I think it can make things too convoluted, but like at, at the same time, I have much, I have great respect for anyone, any of the, the Marvel movies that can like find a way to stand on their own, like with all that going on around them. I just don't know. This is, seems like it's the fulcrum of all that. So I'm a little, like, I'm pretty worried about it in that regard. Oh, yeah, I'm worried. Yeah, I'm, you, I'm worried about, you, I'm worried about it more because I'm like the appeal of Ant-Man is that it's so small stakes. Uh, and now you're going to make him the linchpin of your fucking multiverse bullshit. Like, uh, come on. Yeah. And I thought Jonathan Major's uh, introduction in Loki was very good and pretty impressive, a pr- very impressive piece of acting, but it's like, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, it's, he, he's an actor that seems to thus far to have had really good taste. So I don't think he necessarily would have signed on for this if it was going to totally go off the rails. You don't think he would have signed on for this for $10 million? I don't think they pay like people in that role ten million dollars. Actually, like I don't know, he's probably got a multi-picture deal, right? Maybe it'll, it'll maybe it'll, it, it, it might eventually pay that much. Maybe he gets points, but like my, my understanding, even like the people that like are signed on to like lead the action, be the leads of these things, like they their first deal is smaller, and then they get points and stuff. So I mean, it's going to keep him employed and like really increase his profile and make it so he can demand more. But like, yeah, yeah, he probably did also do it for the money. But like, it's not like he's someone you can point to and been like he took that job for a paycheck so far. So it's like I think he there there had to have been something else to it, and I think it might just be an interesting acting challenge because he's playing playing a lot of different versions of this character. But so I, I I am just excited to see what he does, but I'm not really confident it's going to be good. So I guess we'll see. Uh, though you know, then we have Creed three a month after that, and maybe he can just wash the taste of it out of his mouth. Oh yeah, I saw, I'm, if, so, I'm so mad that I didn't see Magazine Dreams when it was playing Sundance. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, I'm sure there'll be a discussion about that at some point uh, later this year on the podcast. It sounds like, you know, uh, people were actually weren't so hot on that movie, but we're very impressed with him. Yeah, so that makes me excited. Uh, it'll be, it'll, it, we'll, we'll see. So, uh, but yeah, I, I want to thank Daniel again for joining me. You know, usually we joke about how this is like, you know, 
Daniel's time of year because he's been he, he's helping us get through this year. He's been on so many episodes. But like we normally talk about that because like it's genre season. But like when we think about genre season, we don't think about like old man reckoning with his life as part of genre season. But like <laughs> you know, it's 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 part of Daniel's genre season. So and I'm telling you, glad if, they, he- if they if they release an Airbud sequel, an Airbuddies movie at some point, I better be on here. I, I mean, I did promise to do that if there's ever another lockdown. So uh, you, people people have that to look forward to. <laughs> oh, fingers to. crossed. COVID, fingers if, crossed. If, 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 COVID, if COVID makes a resurgence, people have that to look I'm, forward to. I'm rooting to. for COVID-23. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> there, there we go. Well, again, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Daniel for joining, and we'll see you next time.